0: Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. This is Concerts That Made Us, I'm your host Brian, and as always, rate and review us on iTunes, and find us and follow us on social media. Now, this week I'm joined by the brilliant Irish singer-songwriter Colm Gavin. We're going to take a listen to one of Colm's songs before we get talking to him, so, without further ado, let's get on with the show.
1: at alleys and hallways, Oh always. Tomorrow feels like yesterday, the latest trick or runaway. It's all the same since baby when. Around but the shutters down everyone's clown A party piece, a hand me down, and all I hear is the bitter sound of an empty bed now that baby's not around. It seems she's always dressed up, and I got no place to go I wanna call this quits, and just admit what we both know But she's all I've ever wanted And I love her so Find the words I need to say Each night I pray We'll meet again on some sunny day For now it seems all I ever say Is it ain't the same since Baby went away
0: Hi, Colin. You're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us.
2: Thanks, dude. Pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, It's an honor to have you. So uh, for any of the listeners that may not have heard of you, would you like to give them some background?
2: Sure. Well, my name is Colin Gavin. I, <laughs> I'm finding this more and more difficult lately than ever to define what it is that I do. But I suppose I would be a singer-songwriter in the traditional sense of the term. So... My heroes, I had very unconventional heroes as a teenager. I, I loved the music of Bert Bacharach, Irving Berlin, people who would be, I suppose, associated with the great American songbook, um, George and Ira Gershwin. And that that really, that became characteristic of my playing or, or what you would call my sound, so to speak, during the time that I studied in the Klondalkin School of Music. And that was my, I suppose, my formal training uh, under the great Peter Stanton, who now unfortunately is no longer with us, but I am signed to Bio Records. That's the home of the First Lady of Celtic Music, Moira Brennan. Uh, Bio, Record, Bio, Bio Records is like a family, you know. And from day one, they they made me feel like I won't say part of the furniture, but certainly uh, an adopted strafe of some description, you know.
0: It's a very unusual musical uh, influences to hear come from someone so young. You know, you must hear that an awful lot. How uh, how were you exposed to the likes of those artists?
2: So I studied at a place called the Clendalkin School of Music and my teacher, Peter Stanton, would have been, his, his musical lineage would have gone back to, he was in the Army Number no. 1 band in Cork and he was in marching bands and sort of, you, you, th- you think of music in terms of formation. That was his, so he would have played scores from, he would have played scores from the HMS Pinafore or West Side Story, and his mental soundscape would have been shaped by the music of the 30s and the 40s. So swing and ragtime and sort of early big band jazz and stuff like that. And when you when you think about the melodic and harmonic sensibilities that comes with that kind of music, when you if you teach then as a music teacher, that I think that comes through you. And that's that's the the way you mark. A barometer on what you I suppose good taste and bad taste and that just rubbed off on me from very early on I guess
0: yeah yeah it's uh it's something I admire now I just kind of have an older taste in music myself um, all the way back to the 50s right up to modern day but I always find myself going back to the 50s 60s 70s and I just have it ingrained in me that no matter what comes out nowadays you can't beat the classics you know that's where it started that's the formation of music nowadays—you know—music would be so strange nowadays if there was no, you know, as you said, Burt Bacharach, no Elvis Presley, no Beatles. It'd be a very strange musical world. But um what would you say was your first musical memory?
2: I, you know, I get asked questions of the similar nature a lot, and I give a different answer every time. But <laughs> every time I think about it, uh, something else comes to mind. But you know, I, I grew up. In, in a very special place, in the sense that time had something to do with it. But also, I had a lot of friends who were all around the same age at the same time. And the world was changing at the same rate for everybody. I mean, I remember the changeover to the euro. I remember the currency change. I remember talk of the Celtic tiger. And when you're, when your generation is almost like a prototype of something that's completely new... I think you're very aware of it. And I certainly was and The the role that music played for me was anytime you're in the company of a large group of people, you have the opportunity to be somebody different. And the great performers who caught my attention were people like Jim Croce, Harry Chapin, Paul Simon, Randy Newman. And I I grew up, my, my best friend, Shane Mulligan, his grandfather, Dermot Kenny, would have, you know, as kids when we were, hanging around the house. I say kids were probably 10, 11, 12. He would come home from work. He was a, a well-reputed hairdresser. And in the evenings, he'd come home and he was very clued in with modern day music too. He'd come home with a new CD and it could be Ray Lamontagne's first album and he'd say, I heard a great review on the radio about this. So I, I just bought it. And he was cool in that sense with, with his musical taste and they had a great sound system in their house. So he'd play Ray Lamontagne's new record or he'd play... um Something by the band, you know, it could be the night they drove all Dixie Down or Bob Dylan's 30th oh, anniversary concert, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, and I remember hearing un- what would be defined as unusual sounds as a as a young teen and just really being captivated by it and knowing that this wasn't this wasn't coming from the diaspora that my friends were. This wasn't the kind of music that they listened to, which the big song when I was about 12 was the Cha-Cha slide. And we you go to <laughs> I remember going to, or a uh, fat man scoop. I remember going to like school birthday parties and everybody sort of nervously dancing on, you know, your friend, Gavin's tiled floor, his mother's tiled floor doing the cha-cha slide. Um, Cause you just thought that's what you were supposed to be doing. So music, like it, it, there was a divergence at around the time I was about 12 because that's when I went to study music. So yeah, it was kind of a hodgepodge, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha.
0: Mm-hmm. Did, um personally for me, when I was 10, 11, I was a huge Elvis Presley fan. And I used to, this will give you a, an indication of how cool I was as a child. I used to think it was great to boast to my friends in school that I had every song Elvis Presley ever recorded in my collection. Now, that didn't make me very cool, but uh did you find that the artists that you liked, the older ones, the, you know, the, the bigger ones, the ones that weren't as popular with younger people, did you find it's kind of a, an uncool thing growing up?
2: I don't know whether it's having the benefit of hindsight or, or life perspective, but when you look back now, I think of it in today's terms, I don't, you don't encounter even people in their late teens who will come out and say, that I love the music of Harry Shapen or of John Baez or big band music. Like what they think old music is like Oasis. Do you know what I mean? And for yeah. me, it was like, oh, I heard Champagne Supernova for the first time could have been four years ago, even mm-hmm. if though it was, it might've been when I was very, very young. But I think it's character developing. Like if you're, one of my biggest interests was Frank Zappa. I remember going on a family holiday to Florida And there was a huge sort of reduced sale bin in this. It wasn't the golden discs, but it was in a section of a a Kmart. And there was like Hot Rats by Frank Zappa for $4 or um, Son of Mr. Green Jeans for like, if you bought that and you bought live at the Fillmore East, it was only $6. And I just Mm -hmm. thought you're giving away this golden stuff that, Every kid who's gone to school should be taught about this, because for me, who has come along since the 1950s and 60s, and, and I would push into the 70s with the same degree of harmonic and melodic sensibility. So to me, this was a, my CDs were a treasure trove, and I had an old disc man that my mom had brought back from. My mom was a fashion buyer; she brought it back from Tokyo one time, and this was my little haven. You know what mm. I mean? This was my little um, shrine of my myriad of CDs, like Bob Dylan, Frank Zappa. Um, I had like, I had a neighbor who made me a CD of the Brodsky Quartet and the best of Nina Simone. I, I just loved that. And it didn't, music wasn't something that I shared with people because I knew the instantaneous response from a bunch of 14 year olds <laughs> when you say, have you ever heard, uh, my baby cares just for me by Nina Simone is what? So <laughs> just didn't. You know, it was it was my own personal thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You were uh, obviously a lot wiser than I was to, to keep it to yourself.
2: Well, you can't help it. Like, I mean, if you find something that you think. Every, if everyone knew about this, everybody was, would enjoy it as much as I do, then it's very hard to stay tight-lipped about it. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Before we get on to your gigs, uh, the listeners were lucky enough to hear, hear one of your songs there at the beginning. Would you like to tell? Them a bit about.
2: So, since "Baby Went Away" is one of the tracks which is on my forthcoming EP, the 1992 tapes, and this ties in nicely with what we were talking about about the music of the 50s, or, or specifically the music of people like Cole Porter, George and Ira Gershwin, and the the biggest driving influence behind this was Randy Newman, and he has a songbook collection, which is just his song. It's him and the piano. Now he's prim- primarily pianist. So the piano features a lot on his records. But he made this collection called Songbook, which is just some of his better-known songs. And it's him and the piano. And I just thought, it, it because his melodies and his harmonic strength, sensibility is so strong, the songs carry over, even though it seems quite minimalist. And I wanted to take a collection of my own songs. And since Baby Went Away is the only one that has featured on a previous record. It, it came out of my album, A Voice for the Urban Darlings. Um, but the other four, uh, which hopefully you'll hear another one of them later in the show, they're totally, they've, they've never been previously released. So it's a bit of an experiment to see how an EP of five songs, just piano and vocal, vocal will go over. But um, the response has been, has been very positive so far, so.
0: Well, good, good. It's, uh, it is a very good song. I uh, I've listened to it a couple of times now, and I really enjoyed it. I know the listeners are going to going to really enjoy it too. But uh, what's your what's your process for songwriting? I've heard a couple of different takes from different artists I've interviewed. Now I'm intrigued to see what your your version of songwriting is.
2: I always ascribe to the John Lennon approach of ninety nine percent of the job is just showing up at the desk, and <laughs> what what um, COVID or whole pandemic period has afforded us all, is the ability or the time to reassess whatever our routine or our process is. And I would always say in interviews like this that, oh, I do my three hours a day and I show up and I edit for the first hour and then sort of process new ideas. But really, I would do that when I wasn't on the road, because if I was on the road for two weeks, no writing would get done. So having, I won't say the benefit of not having gigs, but just being forced into a situation where you couldn't tour, you couldn't perform, there were no gigs and everything had just gone virtual, then all you've got is time in the day to spend. So that gave me a year to really assess my process, which has always kind of been the same. I just sit at the piano and make the coffee. um, And it'll start with, it's usually like, with something like since baby went away, I remember listening to nothing but Ray Charles for about a month, and he has a record called Ray Charles Sings Country Hits. And when Ray Charles sings country, it sounds like the blues. Now that's for you know theoretical reasons, but it just there was something about his voice and the ambience of the piano. I've always been driven to. I have always been drawn to piano-driven records. I don't know why that is, um, and I liked the swingy lilty thing of them, um, and like a directionless. Major seven chord movement, you know, like it, I I've rearranged it since, but on the new record, it begins sort of in C major, and then I move it to G. Like you get you get the sense there's a strong F major seven in the beginning, which gives you the sense we're at the four of, of C, and then that moves eventually to G. Um, but I just like that sort of ambiguity, you know, that imbalance. And yeah. that kind of that it, it to my thinking, that kind of adds to the sentiment of the lyric, too. But I could be that could be just me. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a that's an interesting one. now. Um, the oddest one I've probably heard now, and I know there's a couple of famous singers as well that have used it in the past, is they'll pick a word out of the dictionary and try to make a song with it. Or they'll say, be reading a magazine, pick out five words and try to turn that into a song. I find that a very strange way to approach it and like you're almost making it harder on yourself and less personal, maybe. Yeah.
2: You know? I well, it's funny that you should say about making it personal because I tend to write from a character perspective more so than the typical narrative of from me to you, which is mm. like 90% of what musical syntax is anyway. Um, like for example, on this record, there's a song called Joanne. And it sounds like a very straightforward love song to a girl named Joanne, but it's not. It was, it was, I was asked to do a couple of songs for a musical by a friend of mine who was based with a theater company in Donegal. And the musical never got made, but I was left with this bunch of songs. And when you listen to the lyric of Joanne, if you if you take the music, if you're not thinking of it from a melodic perspective, it's just a conversation between two people. Well, it's a one sided conversation, you know, as there's something you want to say. I'm sure you don't feel like talking this way. You you can feel the uncertainty of the guy, you know. And so I don't have any. I've never I think I know two Joannes. Do you know what I mean? But <laughs> If I was if but basically to answer your question simply is if I was to rely on being sad every time I wanted to write a sad song, I would my psychiatrist bills would be through the roof you know <laughs> so
0: yeah yeah I get you know what you know what I mean yeah mm. yeah um, we'll um, we'll get on to your gigs now I'm very excited to to hear about these um, the first gig you've ever played what was it
2: the first so I, I mentioned earlier I studied at the Klondokhan School of Music and every year we used to have a summer recital so to speak so whatever pieces we all did grade pieces through the Royal Victoria School of Music or College of Music in London. So you get like for for very rudimentary players, you get a piece like Malaguena, which is like a faux Spanish piece. Um, and that would, a lot of them were transcribed by people like Alan Grundy and Colin Tribe. And they were basically exam pieces, but we would arrange some of them for maybe a four or five piece band performance. And we used to do a lot of, what we would have considered staples like George On My Mind, um, Willin by Little Feet, Poison Whiskey by Leonard Skinner. You know, we would do these band arrangements. And depending on where you were at as a musician, you would play later in the set or earlier on varying degrees of difficulty. And these these could go on for three hours at a time, these shows, but it, it showed me how you put together a musical ensemble, how to keep a crowd entertained and like cuz with performance there's only really two rules one is get their attention and the second is keep it and if you can do that for the course of two hours or two and a half hours i think there's a kind of a magic to that and a weird symbiosis and i think like music is that a performance specifically there is a magic that binds everything in the room together so those early performances would have been my first gigs so to speak
0: jeez i was expecting it to be uh you know playing with friends or out busking or you know maybe Mm. with a couple of friends practicing with instruments stuff like that but uh that's a really sort of uh laying strong foundations for a music career when you're starting off like that and you know getting learning how to put an ensemble together like that as you said it's a it's very admirable it's the first time i've actually heard it as well from a guest but um
2: well, there would now what what you mentioned about playing in a garage with friends. There was lots of that too. I remember punk was a big when I was in school. I was about fifteen in two thousand and seven, and punk was a big thing. So bands like, um, uh, well, what the bands that I was in? I remember my friend Kevin Brannigan, who was the drummer. Every week, he was in a different band, or the band had a different name. I remember there was like the Wannies, the Sugar Plum Fairies. Um, just unbelievable. Now they're all punk groups, and so there yeah. was something. Um, And I remember him doing his first gig, and he came in with like a a tiny, like a, like a post it of uh, of a a gig poster that he had in the Legal Eagle in town, in Dublin. And uh, I just thought it was amazing that to see his band's name Hmm. on this tiny little leaflet was just uh, there was something fuzzy about that. So I like I played in punk bands, but they never would have gone any further than. The rehearsal room. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I get you. Yeah,
0: yeah. I get you. Was that something you would have, uh, would have been like a chore to, you know, to be playing that sort of music or would it, would you have been interested in playing it as much as the Clondalkin School of Music?
2: It's like when you talked about loving Elvis records and there's the part of you that just wants to be young and wants to have mates, wants to have friends. And then there's, the love of music and there's a love of a certain type of music and that, that like those two things crossed when I was a teenager, because most of my friends were in punk bands. There's bands like Squirrel Racer. I'm never going to remember all of the names (laughs) because they just changed so much. But I just, it was the way I went to an all boys school. Right. And even something as juvenile or as simple as when there was also a local girls' school. So when the two would get together for like a concert recital, you just wanted to be the guy with the pink Stratocaster playing uh sugar we're going down you know what i mean because that's what everybody seems to be going for and if i had gotten up on stage and started to sing unchained melody i just don't (laughs) think it would have had the same effect even though that's what i really would have wanted to do and time has been the wiser because that is what i do now and that's what i've i've made a life out of it just time is a funny thing and maybe you know to be singing it in a, a dance hall of Five or six hundred of your contemporary peers at fifteen, it you know it doesn't have the same effect as maybe yeah. the punk rock group did. But I would if if somebody said to me, "You play bass," I'd have learned bass within the week that we had rehearsals just to be part of the band. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's all about knowing your audience, I suppose.
2: At this stage, it is yeah.
0: Your last gig you played then?
2: Well, the last big thing I did. Uh, there's a Irish cultural centre in Clondalkin, where I'm from, called Oris Corona, and every year around St Patrick's Day, keela I'm sure you're familiar with keela come and do a big concert in the hall. It's about 250 capacity type venue, and for the last ten years, I would always do support for them, and that was on like March the seventh, and then I had some small like, I have friends who would play regular pub gigs in the locality and I'd maybe drop in and play a couple of songs with them or something that. That's not, I don't, I never did that. Well, I did at one point, but I don't do it now as a regular thing. So there would have been little sing songs and stuff like that, mm. you know? Um, yeah. But the last gig that it was like just me, I can't remember. I really can't. <laughs> There's that many. I just, I can't remember.
0: I suppose as well with the last year as well, it's hard to, uh, to remember. The last proper one you know when so much time has passed
2: and everything's been virtual like stuff like this you know and yeah. i do i've done easily 100 virtual concerts between last year and now so yeah and that's still you still have to kind of be on your game for that but it's not the same as you know the kind of the nervous sweats that you might get before going on before four or five hundred people you know yeah
0: yeah i was just going to ask what's uh How do you find that, you know, because with a virtual gig, I imagine you're just in a quiet room on your own. You're looking at a screen, whereas obviously when you're playing to a live audience, you can feel the audience. You're getting the energy off the audience. What what is it like to approach a virtual gig as a musician compared to the live performance?
2: In the the beginning, the, the first three or four that I did were weird. Because it's almost like you're playing a slot machine. You know, you're waiting for a virtual response. You're waiting for a comment or a love heart or a thumbs up. And you don't do that. In fact, you do the exact opposite live where you you were just focusing on getting the best version of the song across without letting nerves or, you know, who you might be opening for or who's in the room weigh in on your mind. Whereas now nobody's there. And it's just like now looking into a phone and um, that's e- even a little bit more nerve wracking, I think. Really? Well, in the sense that like. If I'm playing to a room of 160 people, I can see almost the whites of everybody's eyes. But if I'm staring into a phone and potentially playing to any number of people and I one isn't better and one isn't worse, but it's just it's a, you approach it differently, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I get you. I get you. Uh-huh.
0: I had it in my head that uh, the virtual gig, even though there could be anyone from around the world, you know, joining in, well, Mm. watching, that you could almost psychologically might trick yourself into thinking it's a practice session. I know you have to be on your A game, give your best shot, but to get through it, you could think, right, it's just me and the camera or me and phone. It's a practice session to, you know, enhance my skill set. Just so happens people are watching. But um, when you put it like that, that there's so many people watching and I suppose you're not seeing their faces, their reactions, really. You're just seeing the comments. It w- I can see how it would be very nerve wracking as well, you know.
2: Like with any great concert, especially when you do what I do, which is if you look at the concerts of, Jim, like I mentioned, Jim Croce and Harry Chapin, I put myself in the category of like a storyteller. So, there has to be some kind of give and take between myself and the audience. And the same goes if I'm doing a live stream. So, if I just sit down and start to play, whether it's just playing the piano or playing the guitar, and I never interact and I don't make reference to the people who are tuning in and there's no give and take, well, then that's not really entertaining for anybody. And you'll notice the numbers just drop and drop and drop while you're playing, because there's, which only goes to show that with that kind of music, there has to be a, just something a little extra. Hmm. Um, and I think that's attention from the performer. And it's the one thing that's missing today uh, that I feel with, with young solo artists and singer-songwriters and that whole gradient, that it's not just hold the guitar and hope to God you get through the song. <laughs> you have to get to a point, and like practice is a dirty word, but you need to be able to get to a point where you at your best in your practice room is you a multiple of that when you're on stage and you need to be like, there has to be room for improvisation and you can pull off a fantastic, difficult, complex finger piece. But if there isn't that human connection, it, uh, you, you notice people switch off all the time, you know? With a live audience then,
0: and speaking of nerves, so to speak, I've heard people say that the larger audience is actually easier. It's easier to walk out on stage in front of a massive audience versus a smaller audience of, say, 20, 30, 50 people even. That it's um, that it's almost like 50 people versus one crowd, if you get what I mean.
2: Yeah, it, be, it becomes a representative of the whole thing. So like whatever, you, but, but then for that as well, if you're playing to a couple of thousand people, if there's a six or seven hard shots in the front row and that's all you can see and it's intimidating, that represents the whole thing. So sometimes, like, for what I do as a singer-songwriter, if there's more than 4,000 people, the point has gone away from the performance because all the intimacy is lost. And I'm not saying, like, anyone would be blessed to be playing with that many people. But unless you can hem in the audience... Then when those numbers get to that size, half of the intimacy of what I do is gone. Because if I'm doing like if you listen to some of the tracks from the EP, some of them would almost require not pin drop silence, but at least a certain degree of focus so that the song gets across. That gets harder to do the more people that there are. So it, it, it comes down to that's where your stagemanship comes into play. It's like, you know, quiet, slow, quiet slow, fast, quite, you know what I mean? Being hmm. able to keep keep the, keep the momentum going with a bit of variety, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's really about uh, your stagemanship as well then. That comes into a lot. And back to knowing your audience, how to almost control the audience as well. That's obviously something you would have learned back in the Clondalkin School of Music as well, learn how to master those skills as well as playing instruments, singing, studying music, I imagine.
2: Well, that like that was what I was saying to you. But my teacher, Peter Stanton, would have told us there is only two rules to performance. One is get their attention, the other is keep it. Hmm. Um, now, how you go about getting their attention and keeping it is, is two totally different things. But it all comes down to what's the essence of, of what you do. Like If you're in a punk rock band, no one's there to pay attention to the melodies it's it's to, it's a it's almost like a violent act you know mm. then you've mosh pits and stuff like that if you're in a jazz group then all of the emphasis is on the melodic sophistication and the key changes and stuff like that so it's about knowing where you fit in all of that stuff and once i got comfortable with being with knowing who i was as a performer all the other shit just falls into falls into place yeah yeah yeah
0: We'll uh We'll move on to your, um, I don't want to say your worst gig, but the worst experience you've had at a gig.
2: i never talked about this, but it, when, you, when I think of worst gigs, this certainly comes to mind. I'm not going to say where it was because I've actually had a lot of memorable gigs in the same place, but I, I was doing, it was a piano set and it was in a venue that didn't need a piano set. Let's put it that way, or at least my interpretation of this was I was going to play like a jazz bebop nightclub, hmm. which I now realise I don't know how many of those we have, but that certainly wasn't what this was. But there was two young guys who, now young, they might have only been a bit older than me, but they were leaving. So I was playing it. See, if I give away too many details, it's very easy to tell, tell where I was, and it. I don't, I don't want to do that. And um, but as they were leaving, they kind of like spat in my direction and were giving me like the thumbs down. Now I have never, like, it's not like I got hit in the face with a gollier, but it was that gesture of like, that's how little we think of what you, of what you're doing. And I wasn't like, I was probably singing crocodile rock or, you know, um, the way you look tonight. It was, it, to me, very inoffensive music, but mm. they came to get the, you know, boom, 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 nightclub atmos. And I don't know how you're supposed to recreate that on a piano. But again, yeah. like I said, that venue—I had some amazing memories there too. So it's—and that's why I don't want to bring up where it was, mm. um, purely for that sake, because it wouldn't be fair for me to say, "Oh, but there were." There have been experiences, or people just say, "Now that—that's quite a few years ago." Um, but there's been experiences like that. But it's never been bad enough to make me think, "I'm not—I'm not doing this anymore." It's—it's it's too tough, you know. But I've had some very bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine.
0: That's actually shocking, though, that they done that that's you know it's if you don't appreciate someone's music or if they um if they're playing a different style of music than you anticipated or you expected, seeing that sort of reaction is really uncalled for like you know but, you but
2: imagine how many buskers you've passed in your life and you imagine someone with a nylon string guitar playing a little hymn or a canticle where would you need to be mentally to spit at someone like that? You yeah. know what I mean? And that yeah. it, for me, those things always say more about the person who does it than what you're doing. But I just couldn't understand it. But it, in terms of, I had a whole hour of a set still to go. And I was like, how am I going to do this? You know, these were intimidating too intimidating guys. I was, you know, I'm like, should I just stop? You know, should I go over to whoever's on the bar and say, I can't, can't keep playing, you know, um, but it, it nothing and no bad experience was ever bad enough to determine, like I was a busker, you know, I've had people try to rob me, I've had people threatened to break my guitar over my head, um, so the scary aspects of it, um, nothing, it never made me go, oh, feck this, I'm not doing this anymore, I think it just makes you, it just, it's character building, I think you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, true, mm-hmm. just makes you tougher or gives you a tougher skin almost. I think so. I think so. It's uh, it's funny that you mentioned the busker. A recent guest as well said that to try out new songs, he'll walk outside the studio. Why when he's in the middle of recording, he'll walk outside the studio, sit on the step, and start busking on the street to gauge the reaction from people walking by. And I was uh I was telling him that when I was growing up, you know, Ireland is very popular for buskers. There, you know, especially in Dublin. Every 10, 20 feet in the middle of summer, there's a busker somewhere. And I remember being a child and looking at these guys busking and thinking to myself, they as a musician, they have the hardest job ever, you know, and seeing guys on MTV or U2 filling stadiums. I was like, those guys have it easy. I would rather be filling stadiums than standing on the street in my own town where people that know me are walking by. You know, it must have been very intimidating to uh, to start busking and to be busking.
2: You know what it is? It's the fear that that's all you'll ever be thought of as. That for me, I'll tell you one story. It was a, a Christmas. I used to busk with a guy, Evan Walsh. And Evan was like a beacon for me because he he was like a busker's busker. He knew what day's you know, why is a Thursday better than a Friday? You know, this kind of unusual yeah. logic. And and the reason is because on a Friday, people are thinking, I'm going to meet the girlfriend and go to the cinema. Or I'm going to go out with the lads and spend the money is the last thing you want to do with a busker. Whereas Thursday, you have the excitement of knowing tomorrow's Friday and then you're more inclined to get money. He knew things like this mm-hmm. that I would never, never think of. But I remember it was Christmas of 2012 and he said to me, we should go for a drink people who work in offices and shoe stores and department stores go for a Christmas drink. That's what we're going to do. So he picked a date. and I remember we were walking by the Shelburne and getting out of this big black Mercedes van or taxi was this family. And they were like the quintessential, I call um, not office family, but like wealthy, like sickeningly wealthy. Right. And there was, you know, the, you know, the perfect platonic family of like, the mother, the father, the daughter, the son, but like the daughter is the captain of the lacrosse team. And the son is a rugby winning guy. And he's got, you know, the perfect girlfriend, you know, something I mean? so I'm using terms that today you can't say as flippantly. Um, So I have to be careful what I say, but they were, it was like idyllic, idyllic, idyllic. They were all going in for a Christmas drink in a shellbone of all places. Like the Hmm. the epitome of wealth and sophistication (laughs) in Dublin. Now it as looked upon by some, and I kind of, had a heart-sink moment. And Evan put his hand on my shoulder because he knew what I was observing. He said, they don't appreciate what they have. Now, that's a very flippant statement to say, and I'm sure they did. But I knew what he meant was that they've probably grown up in wealth. They've always had whatever it is they wanted. They never went hungry. This isn't even that special an event for them. But he says, any success we ever achieve, we'll know the value of it because we know what it was like to bust for a tenor." You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I think that perspective, because when I would meet people, certain people who I went to school with who didn't particularly like me would say, Oh, you're still busking. And it's almost as if you're saying he's still homeless. You know that? you get me? Yeah. You know what I mean by uh, yeah, yeah, I
0: completely, completely mm-hmm. get you. It's uh that must have, you know, back to the whole thing about having a, a thick skin, that must have been tough to hear and tough to to get past when people are passing comments like that.
2: Yeah, It was rough. Yeah. it was. I, again, I kind of, I had my tribe of lads, you know, like David Kozak, who is still in the music business and Evan Walsh, Joanna Byford. There was a lot of, there was a lot of musicians around the same age at the same time. So we all kind of fell back on each other and we had our own haunts, like we drinking Whelan's or, hmm. um, Captain America, I remember during the week it was gorgeous in the summer, you go to Captain America's for a few cheap cocktails. So we had our tribe that we moved in. But when it's when you'd meet people, so I would have been 21 and I was I was still busking. Um I say that as if it's a defeatist thing, but I'd meet somebody who I went to college with and they'd be working for their dad's company and they'd be, you know, earning whatever a week and they'd be driving a nice car and they'd look at me in my denims and my corduroy like I was a street urchin. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I get you. I get you. At the same time, though, you know, you chose the life you wanted. They chose the life they wanted. Maybe in some people's opinion, their life could have was more so forced upon them. You had the freedom to choose what you wanted. You wanted to do, to do music. You were going about it the right way to build good foundations, you know, and set yourself up for the future. You know, that's another way of looking at it you know i'm sure those guys wouldn't look at it like that but it's all about i find with creative creativity and especially music it's important to know the struggle do you know what i mean absolutely and it breeds absolutely. creativity you know so it's almost needed
2: it it certainly gives you a bedrock to build everything up from you know mm. what i mean like for example this friday I'm doing a gig, which will air as kind of a, a whole program this summer. But I'm doing a gig in the board, gosh. Now, if you had said to me at 21, at the end of this week, even if it was during the pandemic, and even if it was like, this this would have been a full capacity event, but we can't because of the coronavirus or the present state of lockdown or whatever you want to call it. If you'd said that to me, I, I I wouldn't have believed you. Or maybe I would have, I don't know. But, but just the the contrast now that we're talking about working on the street and trying to make a crust, even sometimes just making bus fare to get home, you know, um, to going from there to these type of places was a transition. I think every musician hopes to get to, but it doesn't always happen. And I think one of the things that can does is if it, if it keeps a fire in your belly, if you can push through a rainy day on Grafton Street when four people have tried to rob you and there's a guy who's waiting up the road with a Stanley blade for you and oh, all you Jesus. want to do is die, you know? Um yeah. You know, that teaches you something.
0: Mm, I could imagine. Mm. I'd say there's a many a person that that turned off, you know, that even those words, someone waiting up the street with a Stanley knife. Jeez, I think I'd be uh, putting away the guitar or whatever instrument for good, you know, and I wouldn't be going back.
2: There were there were guys at that time who what their whole thing was intimidating people. You know, it could be the guy who goes out for a cigarette and his break from the jewelry store, but they, were ju- that was, they wanted to see, would you show fear? You know, how quickly mm. would you hand over your money? And I think, because I never, I was never, those threats never came to fruition, mm. but it was just to shake you. It was like, okay, well, if I give you money, will you leave me alone? And, and that's all it ever was. And most provocations like that tend to be the case that they just want to see, will you hand over the guitar, hand over the money or whatever it is, which I never yeah. did thank god but um but again i always had my my tribe you know i always had uh, my gang and i I think when you have like-minded people to fall back on it does make the journey which can like penury is a rough thing to go through um but when you have your pals it does make it easier
0: yeah yeah we'll um we'll flip it around for a minute so when it comes to busking we don't want to scare anyone off of busking (laughs) what has been some of
2: the better experiences when it comes to buskin that you've had if you stand on the busiest retail street in any city the whole world passes you by because you get tourists from other countries celebrities I mean I I don't know how many stories like I met Conan O'Brien through busking um, I met oh jeez I mean I could go on I mean like one thing that I've been blessed to be a part of is the Christmas Eve busk almost it's, it's, since its inception, I met Glenn Hanser through buskin and then eventually was asked to come and, and be a part of the Christmas bus which in recent years um there wasn't one last year but I think i've the last ten years i've I've been there every year um but it, it, it's it's magic because you i could be i could be on Grafton Street from one o'clock in the day till eleven o'clock at night, so the whole city gets the chance to pass you. Hmm. and we you know There's some stories I can tell you and there's some that I can't, but it's it's the memories that you make and the objective standpoint that you're at, because nobody's there to see you. You just happen to be there. And if they give you money, that's validation. And that validation can buy a burger, Coca-Cola, maybe a few drinks. Maybe you've got a date the next week and you could save up some money from that. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a there was a value system that I like that's how I learned the value for money was if you're good enough someone will give you money if you make a lot of money you must be pretty good you know
0: yeah and I imagine it's not even about the money it's you know it's the fact that they value what you're doing so much that they're wanting to give you something you know it doesn't matter how much it's just that they're showing their appreciation for what you're actually doing and that that must really mean something when someone does that you know
2: a lot of times for me it was about the money because again i didn't i never subsidized music with something else this wasn't like i'll go out and do two hours of busking but i'll go back to work at my job and in a leisure center do you know what i mean i didn't so that was my only form of income so if i wanted to do anything that weekend you had to get the guitar and go out and sing some songs so like it was quite literally singing for your supper
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm uh I'm actually glad that you mentioned the the Christmas busk. Um I've seen a couple of videos on YouTube of you singing in the in the Christmas busk, and I think uh Hosier is beside you, Glenn Hansard. But uh I've had guests on from America who didn't really fully understand what it was. And the way they put it to me was, is it true that Banos stands on the street and sings at Christmas time? But uh that must have been like a a not a turning point in your in your career but real validation that you're getting the chance to do that when so many legendary musicians from ireland get to do that you know and then you're being asked to do it as well i know that sounds like i'm saying that you're not their level but i didn't mean like that at all i I totally
2: get you i totally get you totally get you and and like the so the first one that I ever did was in 2012 or 11. I can't remember. But the year that I did it, Bono wasn't there. This is always <laughs> when people ask me about the Christmas books, they're always like, and was Bono with that one? Um, <laughs> and I totally get it. I know I do, I, I do understand it. And what, what always freaked me out about it was people use like this happens on Christmas Eve. So the next day is Christmas Day and you would get people coming from Italy Spain, Brazil, predominantly Catholic countries where Christmas is of some significance. You know, I would understand if you didn't celebrate Christmas, but these people would travel to Ireland in the hopes that they were going to get this close to, to Bono, you know, to their to their hero. And when I would, if I knew on a given year that he wasn't going to be there and they would show up early and they're like, is he, what time is he coming? And you know, in your heart of hearts, he's not going to be there. You kind of, I'd never say it. I'd say, oh, I don't know. You know, it's a sporadic thing. Sometimes he's here, sometimes he's not. Um, I think the magic of it is, um, well, what's nice about the Dublin scene is ha- having seen how people have grown. You know what I mean? I remember one particular year, the busk was to be at the top of Grafton Street and Dermot Kennedy, who now has, has gone on to do amazing things. I knew Dermot really well. And Dermot and me used to busk not far from one another. He used to busk at the top of Grafton Street and I was on South King Street. And I saw him way at the back of a crowd. And I said, can everybody just move and let Dermot come through? Hmm. And he came all the way up the front and we were playing like "Stand by me. And in the distance, he said, Cole, what's happening at Dunn's? And we had got the wrong spot. So here's all these people <laughs> in front of us thinking, oh, this is where the bus is. But people at the back had started to figure out, oh, no, it's down at Dunn's. So there was this mad run up Grafton Street. <laughs> And myself and Dermot, I remember we were holding our guitars in the air and he was just like, this is insane. But that was the nature of, of like how it could just, it was like a mad mass gathering. And then as quickly as it started, it was over. Yeah. You know? So yeah. there's a magic like that could only happen in Ireland, I think. It just wouldn't happen anywhere else.
0: Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, uh, I hope I haven't ruined my next question now, but uh, your best experience at a concert or at a gig. What was that?
2: Like what I was talking to you about the graduation levels from busker to solo artist to bar performer to whatever. For for me, like one of the greatest pieces of validation was in 2017 I was asked to support Sholin in Vicker Street. And from the very start, this was always going to be a sold out gig. The guys have an insane following. And I remember during the sound check. Well, after my sound check, I remember going for a walk. I had the stage to myself, and at pushed standing capacity, Vickers Street can hold almost two thousand people. And I remember just sitting on the stage, like I'm sitting here talking to you, and thinking, Bob Dylan played here, Randy Newman played here, Neil Young played here, Jackson Brown played here, and just thinking because I like there's a thing that Bruce Springsteen says: if you don't mark your successes the day when your ship finally comes in, is going to feel like another day at the office. And I never wanted it to feel like that. So anytime a big thing was happening, I would always sit with it and maybe I'd just get a pint from the bar and sit on the stage, cross-legged and just look up at the lighting rig or -hmm. look at the sound engineer's booth or all the little guitars that are all tuned and ready to go for this concert. And this place is going to be full. Um, that was a huge like that was huge you know there's been a couple of great ones but moments like that when when um someone said to me before it's when your followers are people you don't know or your your people come going to your show or people you don't know um that's when you feel like you're doing something right you know yeah yeah
0: i haven't heard that one before but it's actually uh, one of the best ones the best way i could think of putting it actually when your followers are people that you don't know
2: Because it's like for the longest time when you're doing gigs, what do you do? You send event invitations to friends and family and anyone who come and, you know, half the room and it's more moral support than anything else. But when you can put on a show and there's people who you've never met, you don't know coming to see you. Like, that's not a great example of it because that was Sholin's gig. But I remember there was a, we had a merchandise stand and like the, that wasn't the first time that it happened, but it's all if someone who you don't know who's older or younger than you comes up and wants to buy your CD or get a picture with you or something like that, That, that no matter how many times it happens, the magic of that is never lost them, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a, I imagine it's a very special feeling. If you had to pick one standout moment then in your career so far, that has been the greatest or the most memorable point for you, what
2: would have been? I think, like, I think again. It's my biggest fear. You well, not say biggest fear? But I, I always had this. I was conscientious of the fact that will people always just view me as being a busker because I was I was a busker from the time I was fifteen till I was like twenty-one. Hmm. You know, and and that I I feel sometimes when people think of street performers, that's all you'll ever be. It's like you're a busker. They don't think of you in terms of like I was, I was seventeen and I was studying. Rachmaninoff, and um, music by the Brodsky Quartet. Now, I went out in the street to learn how to be a performer as well, but I thought, well, you know, there's more feathers to my bow than just, you know, going out and singing You Ain't Go Nowhere by Bob Dylan. (laughs) Um, And I remember when I signed with BIO Records in 2015, that was a real breakwater point because I remember remember telling my mom, I remember telling my music teacher, Peter Stanton, because getting signed... nowadays maybe it doesn't hold the same cachet but back you know it's not that long ago but for people who knew me it was a really big thing because that was like the graduation process from okay solo artists like you're i always think of it like you're shaking the trouser leg of the world and then one day they turn around and go what you want Mm. and there's your moment. there's your moment where somebody says okay you want validation show me what you got
0: Especially in Ireland, because I always imagine Ireland is a very hard place for a singer to get on. You know, I always imagine they'd have to go to maybe London or even further abroad to America if they, if they really want to try get on or even get signed. You know, because even though Ireland is known globally for its amazing talent when it comes to music, I always maybe it's something that you don't know unless you're in the music industry. But I always imagine that there's not that many opportunities to actually, you know, to break into it in Ireland.
2: I think of sorry to cut you off there. Um, I, I think there were a lot of bands when I was young. Bebo was the first social media, and I often felt I often felt that there were bands who if they could have stuck it out a bit longer until things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram became prominent, hmm. that they would have they would have made careers for themselves on an international playing field. Because the funny thing is the majority of CD orders that I get or radio play is all in the States. And the only reason that is the case is because of social media. So I feel like that's played a role that I don't think people give enough credit to because it's, it opens you up to an unlimited market that doesn't have to be where you're centered. And I Maybe maybe not enough people utilize it that way. Maybe they do. I don't know. um But it it certainly for me. Like I I when Dublin was more of a village, and when Ireland was one thread on a long bow of places where you could go to try and make it in an industry. Like for me, I, I remember being fifteen in two thousand and seven. I thinking, what music scene? Do you know what I mean? Like I know I was only a teenager, but like I had friends who they were. They would have done a gig in an Eddie Rockets if they would have been left. You know, like there wasn't, I know we were under 18, so that does account for a lot of it. But like, there wasn't, there were bands, but there, uh, no, again, I was probably too young. There's people who'd say, well, you were 15, what would you have done? But it didn't feel like there was a scene, you know, it Hmm. was just this big concrete jungle of a city. And if you could get a gig in a corkies or a champion sports in the corner like you would have taken it you know and yeah try and get your mates to turn up and buy tickets and stuff like that so i don't know i just like i'm really fortunate now because i'm i'm recording and i'm I'm writing with charlie mcgettigan who like he was he was like an idol for me growing up in terms of of songwriters and to make that turnaround from like busker from clandalkin who just wants to make it in an industry that he knows nothing about to go in and working with the people who you admire. For me, like that, that was, you know, that was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jeez. It's uh it actually sounds like the screenplay for a movie almost, you know, a <laughs> young guy busking on the street and works his way all the way up. And now he's working with his idol. That's uh it's literally the stuff of dreams. You know, it's, it's very admirable. We at this stage, we normally get slightly more personal, but you don't need to don't need to worry. We're not going to get too personal. We're not going to delve into your personal life or anything. Okay. Um, so if you if you got the chance to see any performer from any stage in history can be current or it could be someone who has passed away from the past in concert for one night only. Who would it be?
2: I'd say Frank Zappa. Probably. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay, yeah, good choice.
2: He, like we were talking about musical sophistication, the, the performances that he put on. I think of like some of the legendary performances in the film *East*, or you know, even even latterly when he was working with the London Philharmonic, and his arrangements were applied to a classical or for a classical listening audience. And just to be in the man's presence, really, you know, as a spectator, mm. that'd be that'd be amazing. What about yeah. you?
0: Oh, that's a uh, I find that my answer changes from week to week. It's funny. who is it this week? Uh I'd say probably Jim Morrison. The Adors. Doors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I know it's probably I imagine if you were going to a Doors concert it'd be one of them things where you know it's like nowadays going to see Guns N' Roses or something you don't know until they're on stage that the gig is actually going to happen.
2: Have you ever been to Jim's grave or anything like that?
0: No. I had actually got tickets or I had plane tickets to go to Paris in April mm-hmm. last year, believe it or not. And of course, COVID happened.
2: So wow. I So you would have you would have went otherwise? Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. I was uh I was dragging the missus along, pretending it was going to be a romantic trip to Paris, but there was only one reason I was wanting to go there, to be honest with you.
2: Do you it's, know where specifically he is?
0: Not in uh Pierre Lache. No. Okay. I don't know the exact spot, but mm. I know he's in there. Yeah. And obviously I've seen photos and you know I it's uh it's been on my bucket list now I'd say since I was about 13 14 since I first got into the doors But uh geez. isn't there
2: the legendary grave photo that whatever way the light is breaking through the trees it looks like Jim in the background.
0: Yeah, so the with the white shirt yeah. and the leather pants. right. Yeah
2: yeah, yeah. so uh,
0: would you have been into the doors yourself much
2: yeah huge huge I mean I even had my uncle was hugely into them and I had a vinyl copy I still have it somewhere I'm actually in the attic so it's here somewhere Um, of Native American prayer or American oh. prayer I think it's called which is just a collection of his poetry mm. Um, that's the whole Lizard King end of Jim but like I loved I remember learning um, Love Lover Madly or Hello I Love You Love Street, um even the Alabama song, Show Me the Way to the Next Whiskey Bar, you know. Mm. Um, they were there was a particular summer, I think when I was about 15. I remember like going through a phase of Cat Stevens, The Doors, Eric Clapton, and just sitting with the like, I used to play a Fender Squire and mm. trying to learn the chords to these songs, just fabulous.
0: Yeah, yeah. I imagine. What did you think of the uh, the soft parade album? Actually, I imagine that'd be closer to to style of music that you'd you'd play yourself. You know, it's very piano based and
2: melodic. I I was in studio with my with my band Shiloh Palace when Ray Manzarek passed away in two thousand and thirteen, oh. and I like his the way he would approach. You know, the intro to Riders on the Storm yeah so that though you have all these gorgeous um well they're not parallel forts but it's that oh it's that unusual e minor a sequencing at the beginning um he just he he made the keyboard and instruments that played a different role to anything that it did in previous incarnations of bands if you know what i mean like he brought it to the significance of a lead guitar and you can't you can't hear Jim Morrison's voice without hearing a Hammond organ, you know, in the background.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very true, actually. Very true. um, But, um,
2: yeah, Soft Parade. And again, like, I was kind of a rocker when I was a teenager, so I could appreciate uh, Break On Through to the Other Side or, you know, and I went through proggy phases too. So, like, I didn't really develop a, a strong taste for the music of the 50s and 40s till I was in my 20s. But it was there, do you know what I mean? It was in the periphery. Yeah, yeah, love the Doors,
0: man. Other oh, one of the one of the coolest. It'd be it'd be some dream though, to get to see them. I'd actually one of my dreams for the podcast is I don't know if it'd make an in, an interesting episode, but I'd be you know glued to the conversation if I got to interview someone that went to a Jim Morrison and the Doors concert. But uh, I actually had tickets myself. Do you remember back in I'd say it was two thousand and eight or nine when the Doors kind of reformed, but they had. I think the guy from the cure or they had someone else as the lead singer and they came okay. to Ireland, came to Ireland, they were playing whatever the O two two or three was called back then Tree mm. arena, but I had tickets and sadly I wasn't able to make it. And it's when it comes to music and shows that I've been to, it's one of my biggest regrets. Cause obviously now you, you can never get to see them, you know, mm. but uh, oh, it would have been some experience to get to see them. I'd say so, yeah. So uh, my next question then, if you could be locked in a room for 24 hours, let's say you had to quarantine with any performer, again, from history, who would it be?
2: And I assume like we'd be talking about music or composition. Okay, okay. Like It's not someone that I have to sit and go through 15 hours of Monopoly with, you know. (laughs) Um, Like I, I... I have huge admiration now for like classical composers like Rachmaninoff and like Boulez and um, Stravinsky, like someone like Igor Stravinsky, someone who, or Sanson, you know, I love the French composers as well. But the the degree of complication that comes with arranging for an 82-piece orchestra, or and all of this has to begin in your head or at the piano and then apply it in a time where you don't have your iPhone to record, oh, you know, this F-sharp minor sequence sounds nice, I'll just play it against this, but you've no way of, of doing that. Um, or people who, like, wrote specifically for harpsichord and have to, have to translate that for a 100 other instruments. It would just be really interesting to pick somebody's brain and say, you know, when you lived in the destitute part of Montmartre, France, <laughs> where you can't pay for your heating. But, you know, and I, he- I heard quotations from composers who said, to be surrounded by the written note made them feel wealthy because, you know, the rich, the richness of music and in particular classical composition um, was enough to feed the soul, which I don't know how I'd feel if I hadn't eaten for six days. But those, those guys, like the early composers, mm. maybe not Bach because I think there's a, there's kind of a very educational aroma attached with that. But the guys who like had, a, it was all to play for, you know, who who never, received adulation in their lifetime and died destitute you know what what is it that spurs those guys on
0: actually i really like that answer it's it's actually i find it very insightful into who you are as a musician almost that you you know anyone can say oh i'd love to spend an evening with paul mccartney or well paul mccartney is probably a bad example because he's a bit of a genius when it comes to songwriting but say you know just pick a name out of the hat from any band, but you're actually picking, you know, older genius level composers and genius musicians. You know, that's, uh, I find that a great insight into you as as a performer, as a
2: musician as well. Well, when you, like, if you think of the Instagram age, you think of what motivates people to, like, some of the best advice I ever got was from Anthony Staunton when he said to me, in anything you do, whenever you do it and wherever you do it, know your motive, know what it is that's motivating you to do it. And where some people will feign sincerity and say, I'm all about the music, man. <laughs> but behind it, it's, you know, and look. they're looking to acquire 200, like a quarter of a million so that they can launch their own line of footwear. It's really <laughs> yeah. strange. No, it's really strange today. Like that, there are performers who, there's they take up an instrument because somebody mentioned at their confirmation party that they have a half decent voice and they go on a television program to gain a certain amount of capital so that they can start a makeup line. I just Mm. don't get it. I don't. And I would shudder to think what a Boulez or a a Rachmaninoff would say to someone who you're using their diaspora or their means, means of creativity and means of making a livelihood to not jeopardize it, but to strictly from a monetary perspective, because, mm. you know, it's it's a more interesting career path than advertising. And that you effectively really what you're just thinking about is is the financial side of it, which I, I say this all the time. If I lived behind a cluster of bins, I'd be doing this anyway. You know what I mean? This yeah. is it, like I'm not just because the going's good doesn't mean that's why I'm here. I told you, like when I was busking about walking home in the rain. After being threatened for what little money you made. You know, if if you didn't, if you weren't in it for the music, you wouldn't, you wouldn't keep going.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's um it definitely shines true though, your love for music, especially with this conversation. It's a, uh, it's very easy to see, especially when you look at, you know, music nowadays and pop stars nowadays and what's in the charts and what's popular you know you guess I personally maybe I'm a bit of an old soul but I personally get a feeling like the majority of what's popular now those pop stars just want to be famous and want to be rich you know there's no love of the art or no love of the music in the in their performance or in popular music nowadays what would you think of you know the music scene nowadays
2: there's always been great music and there's always been crap music. And it, it depends on what end of the spectrum. You know, it's like, does the cork rise to the top or does the lime sink to the bottom? And by, the difference between the 1960s and today from a contemporary music perspective is that the stuff that was in the charts had a certain degree of compositional substance. So the Beatles could have had five singles in the charts at one time. But it, it had substance to it. But the generation that preceded the kids who were listening to the Beatles said, "Sure, that's all crap." And I I, I shudder sometimes to think that maybe I'm just wrong about all this stuff, and that you know the brilliance of a Cardi B won't hit me until I'm sixty. You know, <laughs> um, I just don't know. But I like for me, I I write I write music for, um the the exchange student who's working in Hodges and Figgis. and likes to listen to concertos on their lunch break. That, that's who I'm making music for. Mm. I'm not making music for somebody who is is overwrought with excitement because Justin Bieber retweeted something that they share. Yeah, no, I'm not saying I'm against that because all of those things have their place. But I'm just saying, well, here's something that's a little bit different. Here's something that isn't the top 40 or the hot top 100 or whatever. You can take it. Or you can leave it. But it's just about giving people other options because all of these, like I said, all of these things have their place. And I'm, I'm sure the purchasers or the people who are patrons for like mainstream contemporary music, that that has as much melodic significance in their life as Paul Simon did for me. And I'm not taken away from that because I, I don't like music snobbery. But what I do just gives someone another option. It's like if you're sick of... Ham on rye, well why don't you know maybe let's just have a little bit of tiger loaf with cheese. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: That's it. That's it. You know?
0: I think it's uh you you deserve an enormous amount of respect, you know, for what you're doing. When especially when as I said, the music scene today and you know what we just said about people being famous and all, and the style of music you have and the clear love for music and the art that you have it's ai uh, i find i feel like i'm repeating the word admirable but it is it's very admirable and i've I, i've gained an enormous amount of respect for you now as a musician obviously I, I did beforehand but it's just shot through the roof of my eyes now you're you know i don't know i don't i can't even put it into words but it's you know, you deserve a lot of respect for it. But um, and I know my Thanks, listeners are going to, going to think the same. It's uh it's refreshing to see a musician nowadays, especially a younger musician who is in it for the music.
2: I think if you whatever you get into, like if it's if it's sales, if it's advertising, if it's the stock exchange, if it's music, if the whole purpose is to maybe make your little corner of what you do a little bit better than the way you found it. There's a wholesome quality to that. And I'm not like, I don't. it's just about giving people other options. If you do what you do well, it'll find people. And I think if your intention is to get in because you want to be the next whoever, and you want to make a load of money, those are hollow ambitions. Go do something, go be part of a reality show where you can be famous for nothing. And the fly on the wall aspect of of those type of programs is what sells, and all those things have their place. Enjoy it and have a great life. If you're going to get into something that's as difficult as the music industry, I mean, you'd want to be doing it for the love of it because it's not it's not a cakewalk. So if your if you didn't if your intentions weren't pure from the beginning, it's going to be very tricky. We we talked a little bit about popular music. My first two EPs got to number one in the Irish charts, and I remember. I, I won't mention the name of the blog, but they posted, I brought out a single with Bure Records uh, in 2016. And they said, and after two successful climbs to the top of the charts, Column Gavin fails to hit number one with this single, My Little Sweetheart and Me, which cuts short the hat trick record or whatever. I was horrified because I thought it was never my intention to make music specifically for the charts. And the charts have their role and that's fine. But that was never the be all and end all, you know, Mm. if only six people ever bought my album, and one of them came up and said, I really enjoyed that song. And, you know, that key change you did, that would be enough validation, I feel.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of my final questions, so and I'm intrigued to see to see what what you're going to pick. If there was one song that had to appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be?
2: I suppose it'd have to be something like "always look on the bright side of life" or something, <laughs> tongue in cheek, you know. No, yeah. I. It's a tricky question, but it's it, it's a good question. Um, I maybe the next song that I write, I, I don't know. I, you mean by someone else? Yeah, yeah. Oh.
0: Um, I think it's actually one of them questions you kind of need to go off, and maybe sit on a beach and ponder for a while. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tough and It's a tough one, but also, um, to be honest with you, man, like I don't, at the end of the day, I don't know, it's playing out your life like a movie, which sometimes life can be a little bit like a movie. Um, Or you could pick anything by Sanson. Maybe The Swan by Sanson. (laughs) If I was to be really greedy now, I think I'd, because it's just a gorgeous piece of music. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's next
0: on the cards for you?
2: Well, as, as we're talking, there are people in smoke-filled boardrooms around the country and around the world talking about how are we going to open up the live circuit again? So, like, they, you know, if we had spoken this time last year, we'd be talking about everything cloistering and down, and now we're talking about it reopening again. So I've got, like, so I've got an EP, the 1992. This should be where I shamelessly plug this. Oh, yeah, um, The 1992 tapes, which comes out this July, it's five tracks of original material. It's just me, a piano-driven EP, so it's a vocal and piano. This is, if you've grown tired of just hearing the bog-standard threshings of what pop music offers, here's something a little bit different, something with flavours of ragtime, um, blues, music, musical theatre influenced in some respects, just something that's a slight divergence from the regular that I think give your ears a bit of... Uh, a bit of variety, and I think you really enjoy it. Myself and Charlie McGetigan have plans to bring out a single in about September, October. Um, I Have plans to do some work in the States, stuff that was postponed in 2020 that's now moved to 2021. So it's going to be thing I can already. And also this July, um, I'll be giving a very special performance in the gosh on a gorgeous Ritmüller grand concert grand piano, and that performance will air this July. So there's lots of there's lots of stuff going on. If you, you can keep up to date with all my stuff on Column Gavin Music on Facebook and Column Gavin on Instagram.
0: Perfect. I was just going to ask you where's the the best place to stay up to it's date.
2: Drilled in my head right. <laughs> <States. It's> like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you say it in your sleep almost.
2: I know, I know.
0: <laughs> so uh another one of your songs are going to to play us out this evening. Would you like to tell us a bit about it,
2: introduce it? So this, this song is called Your Little Corner of the Moon. Um, again, we talked about where these songs come from and the writing process and stuff like that. And this, um, I often think of this song as like a Woody Allen screenplay. It opens up with a like a bad first date joke. Um, if there are seven wonders in this world, then you must be the eighth. She said, I only ordered rice. Now it seems there's cheese here on my plate. <laughs> I said, I guess that's not the kind of thing you'd hear in a first date. But if I didn't say it now, I never will. It's kind of a, 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 an unrequited love song it's about as close as my music gets to unrequited love but um, it has charted in the indie charts in Japan and in Australia already and I think for a song that goes over the five and a half minute mark um, you know that's not bad going so I'm I'm proud of the old year
0: perfect perfect well all that's left to say then is thanks a million for coming on I've really enjoyed it
2: pleasure absolute pleasure and it was great to talk to you
1: Seven wonders in this world Then you must be the eighth She said I only ordered rights. Now it seems there's cheese here on my plate I said I guess that's not the kind of thing That you'd hear on a first date But if I didn't say it now I never will She had the kind of eyes that poets from Alaska right about That could freeze you with one glance But that you'd burn inside without And as her feet would glide down Main Street All the boys would scream and shout I hope there's someone out there Screaming for her still And all the girls eat mashed potatoes As I swallow humble pies Problem shared is a problem still, I don't need to tell you why Her cage door's standing open, but she won't rest until she flies To her little corner of the moon It was late September, I recall There was gold beneath our feet By circumstance I learned to dance In her arms out in the street And the fragrance of her hair gave off The taste of something sweet I'd have stayed right there forever If I could She said that love is like a lottery As the red lights fade to blue I don't know what it is I'm searching for but tonight perhaps it's you Still I don't want the kind of heart That sticks to my shirt sleeves like glue And then she kissed me like she thought I understood That all the girls eat mashed potatoes As I swallow humble pie A problem shared is a problem still I don't need to tell you why her cage door standing open, but she won't rest until she flies to her little corner of the moon I wanted to save from the time we started Just sighed and said Think of us As passing ships That were never meant to sail There's such a high price For the quiet life And my freedom's not for sale I'm like a Wild wind that can't reduce itself To a passing summer gale If this were any other time For you I would It's only three weeks since she left, but there's a cold chill in the air. There's not a trace of her on Main Street, but I still see her everywhere. And Mama told me she'll come back, son, if you just act like you don't care. Still I know this time goodbye meant bye for good all the girls eating mashed potatoes as i swallow humble pie a problem shared is a problem still i don't need to tell you why but every night it seems in my wildest dreams it is always she and i
0: you enjoyed this week's episode if you did why not reach out and let us know you can find us on all social media just search for concerts that made us podcast and also be sure to check out our website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com that's the best place to stay up to date on everything that is concerts that made us until next week keep rocking Hey, what are you guys still doing here? The show's over. It's over. You can go home. Go
1: on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.